The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, I'm Nitin Seem, podcast editor for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Today, I'm joined by sleep experts Dr. T. Douglas Bradley and Dr. Jörg Steyer to discuss an article by Owen Lyon, Dr. Bradley, and their colleagues entitled Effects of Ultrafiltration on Sleep Apnea and Sleep Structure in Patients with End-Stage Renal Disease, and a related editorial by Brian Kent and Dr. Steyer. As a way of introduction, Dr. Bradley is Professor of Medicine and Director of the Division of Respirology at the University of Toronto, the Cardiopulmonary Sleep Disorders and Research Center at the Toronto General Hospital, University Health Network, and the Sleep Research Laboratory at the Toronto Rehabilitation Institute. He also holds the Cliff Nordal Chair in Sleep Apnea and Rehabilitation Research at Toronto Rehabilitation Institute. And Dr. Steyer is Consultant Physician in Respiratory and Sleep Medicine, Guys and St. Thomas NHS Foundation Trust, and Senior Lecturer at King's College, London, United Kingdom. Dr. Steyer, before we get into the specifics of this study, I was hoping you could provide some background for our listeners. Apneas are classified as either being central or obstructive in origin. Can you tell us how this distinction is made on polysomnography and what is the clinical significance? Thank you for this question. With sleep onset, our central neural output usually drops, and this leads to a decreased neuromuscular tone of the upper airway dilator muscles. The upper airway becomes collapsible and might completely occlude, leading to an obstruction. In that case, there will be ongoing inspiratory effort while the airway is blocked. After a period of more than 10 seconds with no airflow, we speak of an apnea. During this period, increasing efforts to breathe commonly terminate with an arousal from sleep and with a neuromuscular tone increase, the upper airway patency is restored and breathing resumes. Obstructive sleep apnea is frequently associated with obesity or abnormal anatomy of the upper airway, but also with other conditions. In contrast, central sleep apnea is characterized by apneas and a lack of inspiratory effort. There's no ongoing inspiratory effort in the respiratory or the abdominal bands in polysomnography studies. There's no central afferent signal to initiate inspiration. And central sleep apnea is frequently associated with cardiac conditions like heart failure, but can also occur with the use of medication, drugs, alcohol, neurological conditions, physiologically at altitude, or as shown by Dr. Bradley's group in end-stage renal disease. And frequently, we can see a mixture of central obstructive apneas that are observed in the same patient, sometimes even within the same apneic event, starting, for example, as in central and ending as an obstructive apnea. Associated with the nocturnal apneas are intermittent hypoxia and endothelial stress, large intrathoracic pressure changes, and increase in heart rate, blood pressure. The body becomes distressed, and stress hormones are released. Dr. Steyer, thank you for that description. And as you alluded to, Dr. Bradley's study has to do with end-stage renal patients, and I thought it was a fascinating study. So I wanted to step back again and discuss fluid status and sleep. Going back to my training, I recall discussing the relationship between heart failure, chain soaks, uh, respirations, and central apneas. So if you could give us a little more background before we get into this manuscript, can you tell us what is known about the effect of fluid overload on both obstructive and central apneas? 
Well, the impact of fluid on sleep apnea is a very interesting point, as we have seen in Dr. Bradley's study. But we also know from previous studies that were investigating patients with heart failure that an increase in body fluid content impacts on both obstructive and central sleep apnea. In obstructive sleep apnea, a rostral shift of fluid occurs when the patients are lying down at night, and this impacts on the neck circumference and on the collapsibility of the airway, making it more likely that the patients with a higher fluid load will experience a deterioration of the obstruction. In the past, Dr. Bradley's group has shown that in patients with end-stage renal disease, the intravascular fluid accumulation as well as the mucosal water content surrounding the upper airway were directly related to the apnea-hypopnea index, and this in turn impacts on the collapsibility of the upper airway and the severity of obstructive sleep apnea. In central sleep apnea, the nocturnal rostral shift leads to an increased thoracic fluid volume. And we know from patients with heart failure that pulmonary afferent receptors are stimulated by pulmonary congestion, which leads to a relative hyperventilation, driving down the partial pressure in carbon dioxide. These patients breathe close to the so-called apnea threshold, and any further increase in ventilation will result in a central apnea. It is likely that patients with end-stage renal disease who have an increased amount of thoracic fluid volume will also experience similar pathophysiological features. So, Dr. Bradley, as I mentioned, I found this study very interesting, but I want to go through the steps to the study protocol since it is very detailed so our listeners can understand it. So, starting from the beginning, you screened adults for enrollment in the study who were receiving conventional three times per week hemodialysis, and you did not screen whether they had symptoms that were consistent with the sleep apnea. You also excluded patients who had been previously treated for obstructive sleep apnea, obese patients with a BMI greater than 35, or patients with heart failure based on an ejection fraction less than 45%. So it appears to me you were excluding patients who may have an indication for non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. And I'd ask you, first of all, is all of that correct? And then why was the plan only to study untreated sleep apnea? We excluded patients who had been treated for OSA because it had been previously shown by Dr. John Freetham's group back in 1993 that patients who were treated with OSA had a reduction in their pharyngeal soft tissue water content as measured by MRI scanning. We therefore felt that this might be a confounding influence on our study. With respect to obesity, the reason that we did not study patients with a BMI greater than 35 is because the bioelectrical impedance technique that we use to measure food volume becomes inaccurate when there's a lot of adipose tissue present. The reason we didn't study patients with ejection fractions less than 45% is that we didn't want a confounding influence of pure food volume overload versus congestive heart failure that might have affected our results. So you recruited 28 patients to have a baseline polysomnogram the day prior to dialysis, and you took very detailed measurement of several body volumes and circumferences. Can you tell us how these measurements were made and what specifically you were measuring? Yes. We measured total body, leg, thoracic, and neck fluid volumes by a technique called bioelectrical impedance. What that is, is it's two electrodes. One is a stimulating electrode and the other is a receiving electrode. And the impedance to electrical flow between those two electrodes is inversely proportional to the fluid content of the segment, the body segment that you're looking at. 
So we had to place electrodes in the correct positions to measure these different segmental fluid volumes. Plus, we have an electrode on the ankle and on the wrist, which gives us total body fluid volume. With respect to neck and leg circumferences, we measured those with a tape measure. Okay, so 15 of those 28 patients that had the baseline polysomnogram did have an apnea hypopnea index greater than or equal to 20. So per your protocol, they were brought back one week later, again, the day prior to dialysis, and underwent ultrafiltration. Then later that night had repeat polysomnogram and reassessment of the other variables that you just mentioned. So can you tell us about the ultrafiltration session and how much fluid was taken off during these sessions? Yes, the ultrafiltration session took part in late morning until the mid-afternoon and we aimed to remove approximately 2 liters or 50% of their intradialactic weight gain. Ultimately, we removed an average of 2.2 liters of fluid. As a follow-up, Dr. Bradley, I guess one of the questions that will be raised and was mentioned in your manuscript, how did you assess the adequacy of dialysis for these patients if they were relatively euvolemic prior to these ultrafiltration sessions? We basically took patients who had been on three times weekly dialysis for quite some time, and their dialysis routine had been well established. We established that they were well dialyzed by the judgment of their nephrologists, so we didn't get involved in that per se. The issue was we simply wanted to have people who were on dialysis where we had access to their vascular system in order to easily remove fluid rapidly to test the hypothesis that removing fluid per se, as opposed to changing uremia, would improve sleep apnea. So basically, if the nephrologist told us that the patients were well dialyzed, then we accepted that as being adequate. Thank you for that. Per your manuscript, they were referring to the fact that the urea was also reduced by more than 65% post-dialysis. So again, it appeared to be an adequately dialyzed cohort. I think we've kept our listeners in suspense long enough. So if you could tell us about your results, what did you find when comparing baseline sleep to that after ultrafiltration? Well, following ultrafiltration, there was a dramatic improvement in sleep as evidenced by a 1.25-hour increase in total sleep, a 9% increase in sleep efficiency, a 21-minute reduction in stage 1 sleep, 15-minute increases in both slow-wave and REM sleep, and a reduction in the frequency of arousals. In fact, I would say this is the most dramatic improvement in sleep structure I've ever seen in patients whose sleep apnea has been treated. So we were quite amazed by that. The results were quite impressive. Can you tell us about what happened to body volume measurements? Yes. Post-ultrafiltration, there was a 2.3-liter reduction in total body water due mainly to a 2-liter reduction in extracellular fluid volume. Leg volume decreased by 240 milliliters, thoracic fluid volume by 445 milliliters, and neck fluid volume by 69 milliliters. And Dr. Bradley, I don't know if you wanted to get into how their sleep efficiency and sleep structure after ultrafiltration as well. Yes. In fact, I just mentioned that before on the previous question, that there was a dramatic improvement in sleep structure. Now, the issue is, to me, why did that occur? We don't think it's just related to their sleep apnea because we only reduced their sleep apnea severity by about 35 to 40%, so many of them still had significant sleep apnea. It makes us think that part of the trouble with sleep in end-stage renal disease patients is that fluid volume overload per se may be disturbing their sleep. 
So, for example, if they had a lot of water in their lungs with pulmonary congestion, they may not perceive that consciously, but it may be sufficient to disturb their sleep and not allow them to get a full night's sleep. One of the most common complaints of patients with end-stage renal disease, no matter how they're dialyzed, is that they don't sleep very well and they feel tired all the time. So we think that this finding provides some very interesting insights as to why that might be. In other words, it may not be uremia per se, it may not be sleep apnea per se, but part of this may simply be fluid overload. Dr. Styra, I'd love to get your thoughts. Again, a very interesting study. You know, we're thinking about sleep apnea, we're thinking about obesity and other airway factors, as you mentioned, and fluid status is something that we clearly need to be thinking about, especially in this population of patients. So I was wondering what your thoughts were about the study findings. Yes, thank you. Obesity, upper airway, anatomy, age, and gender are generally well recognized as important contributors to sleep apnea. But we have to acknowledge here that the pathophysiology of sleep apnea is multifactorial and complex. Changes in posture are very important as well, as they directly impact on respiratory mechanics, load on the diaphragm, transpulmonary pressures, shifts in body fluid, and the function of the upper airway. Now, Dr. Bradley's group should really be congratulated on designing this physiological study contributing to a discussion about potential pathways that cause sleep apnea and that impact on sleep quality. In my point of view, we have to acknowledge several points. The reduction in sleep apnea severity with ultrafiltration independent of the uremic or metabolic changes, the improvement in sleep quality in these patients following fluid removal and the potential for future therapeutic strategies here. The reduction in sleep apnea severity observed with the ultrafiltration was significant, more than a third in the apnea-hypopnea index, but clinically this might still be moderate. Is this going to be a treatment option for sleep apnea? Potentially. Mild and moderate sleep apnea could well be controlled with a better sleep quality and improved daytime symptoms. And it's an intriguing thought to consider that a more aggressive nocturnal fluid removal in patients with end-stage renal disease than we've tested in this study could maybe achieve this. A striking feature of Dr. Bradley's study was also describing that fluid removal impacts on both central and obstructive apneic events. And the question is whether there's a common pathway maybe impacting on both entities despite the different pathogenesis of these types of sleep apnea. And the current classification of sleep apnea is rather descriptive and based on observation. Well, is a binary classification here really doing justice to the complexity of a continuous spectrum of more obstructive or more central apneic events? Although an interdependence between central and obstructive sleep apnea events has been acknowledged, it still remains a field that is underexplored. So, Dr. Steyer, obviously it's a very innovative study and many intriguing findings that suggest you know, further avenues for analysis as we go forward. But obviously, as in any study, there were some limitations. Could you tell us about that? Yes, thank you. This was a well-designed study on a small cohort of patients with end-stage renal disease. The observed reduction in the apnea-hypopnea index of 36% following the single removal of fluid is significant, although moderate, as discussed in the previous answer. Following this study, it remains uncertain if manipulating fluid dynamics can achieve measurable benefits in the general sleep apnea population in those patients without end-stage renal disease. It could also be argued that more aggressive fluid removal strategies could be of benefit in cohorts of patients with end-stage renal disease, but this remains to be explored. And lastly, a first-night effect 
has also been discussed in the context of polysomnographies and measures of sleep quality as the setup of sleep studies might actually impact on the sleep architecture. However, the results of Dr. Bradley's studies are encouraging and need to be confirmed in a larger controlled trial that may focus on the differentiation of mechanistic models of the etiology of sleep apnea in this patient group. Dr. Bradley, I'd ask if you could comment, you know, it's been well described before the first night effect, but again, as you mentioned, the study findings were so impressive. I was wondering if you think that first night effect is relevant to your before and after findings. Yes, thank you for that question. Well, I would answer by saying the first night effect has not been consistently shown in many studies, and in fact, many people believe there really isn't a first night effect. So I would say that if there was a first night effect, it's usually very small, the results that we see following ultrafiltration are so large and were seen in every patient that it's extremely unlikely that this was entirely due to a first night effect. So I think, although you can't entirely dismiss that possibility, I think it's extremely unlikely. So Dr. Bradley, I'm sure after completing the study and finding the findings uh, that you've described that you said just yourself you were surprised by the magnitude of some of them, I suspect you have plans to build on these findings. And just reading this manuscript myself, immediately things that popped into my mind were whether the effects would be even greater with nocturnal dialysis, I think Dr. Steyer alluded to, whether there would be further additive effects of fluid removal for for example, in end-stage renal patients who are already on CPAP therapy for obstructive sleep apnea. Again, one of those studies that puts so many intriguing questions forward. And so I'd ask you where you plan to go with this data from here. Well, those are very interesting questions and observations. Well, first, yes, I believe that nocturnal dialysis has a potential to improve even more. And in fact, the first observation in this regard was by Drs. Pat Hanley and Andreas Paratus back in 2001 in the New England Journal, where they showed that when patients were converted from conventional three-weekly hemodialysis to seven days a week nocturnal dialysis, their sleep apnea got better. Unfortunately, at that time, they didn't have the techniques to allow them to tease out the mechanism. So by adding the bioelectrical impedance measurements of fluid volume, we're able to get closer to the mechanisms. So yes, we plan now to go to take patients who are on three times weekly hemodialysis who are being converted to nocturnal dialysis at our institution, which has the largest nocturnal dialysis program in the world. In fact, it was the originator of nocturnal dialysis. And so we're working with the head of that unit, and we're now going to start looking at the differences in sleep apnea and sleep architecture that occur once a patient has been converted from three times weekly hemodialysis to five or six nightly nocturnal dialysis sessions. During these studies, we will again be measuring a total and segmental body fluid volumes to see whether fluid volume reductions in particular body segments lead to particular reductions in either central or obstructive sleep apnea. Hopefully, we'll have larger numbers at that time where we can actually tease this out more than we can with the 15 subjects that we studied in the trial at the present time. I guess the other issue is the patients that we studied, in 12 out of 15 of them, they had no signs of peripheral edema, and yet we were able to remove more than 2 liters of fluid without causing any hypotension or any symptoms. This raises the issue as to what is the true dry weight that these people should be aiming for. Is the dry weights that they're aiming at too high? Should they be lower and therefore relieve sleep apnea by removing more fluid? Or should there be extra sessions to remove fluid without necessarily altering uremic status? 
I think these are major questions that could lead to a better quality of life of patients on dialysis by improving their sleep apnea and their sleep structure. Thank you both for a great discussion. I'd ask first to start with you, Dr. Bradley, do you have any final thoughts about the study? Well, I think the most important thing in terms of themes is that there are many people looking at phenotyping sleep apnea. For example, there's the idea that there's upper airway anatomy problems that can lead to sleep apnea. There's the idea that changes in a respiratory system control instability are important, such as increases in loop gain. And now we're looking at the whole field of fluid overload, where, for example, we see very high prevalences of sleep apnea in heart failure and renal failure, which are characterized by fluid overload. I think where this is leading us is to potentially more personalized treatment for particular kinds of sleep apnea, rather than just be a one-trick pony with CPAP for everybody. And again, you can make the analogy, for example, to atrial fibrillation, where it might be due to hyperthyroidism, it might be due to hypertension, it might be due to mitral valve disease, and each one of those would require a specific kind of therapy, even though the end result, the atrial fibrillation, is the same. So I think our field needs to become more sophisticated in the ways of looking at the causes of sleep apnea and trying to identify the mechanisms so that we come up with better therapies that are directed more at the underlying cause. Targeted therapy for sleep apnea would be a wonderful thing. And Dr. Steyer, do you have any final comments? I agree, again, with Dr. Bradley. The direct measurement of actually what's going on in the individual subject might be of help here, and measurements of neurorespiratory drive to actually describe ventilatory control better in this patient cohort could help us to understand the variability and instability of an arousal threshold that we observe in sleep apnea and also help us to better phenotype the underlying pathophysiology. Finally, I would like to add that research in the physiology of sleep disorder breathing has come a far way and continues to be exciting. We've heard this approach, we know, of other hot topics in sleep medicine right now, and I think that we are still in the infancy of further insights of the pathogenesis of sleep apnea. We, we will see more what's there to come and understand actually much better with studies like we've seen of Dr. Bradley's group in future to help our patients what is going on at night and how can we actually improve sleep apnea, but also sleep quality, of course. Okay, well, thank you both for a wonderful discussion. So in conclusion, this is a very interesting study with a dramatic improvement in sleep with ultrafiltration on a non-dialysis day in adequately dialyzed patients with adrenal disease. It certainly provides an example of identifying a cause of sleep apnea and targeting therapy based on this cause rather than a CPAP-for-all approach and with a tremendous improvement in sleep apnea and sleep quality. This article from Dr. Bradley and his colleagues, as well as the accompanying editorial from Dr. Kent and Steyer, are published in the June 1st, 2015 issue of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. You can find this, as well as our other article discussion podcasts, at atsjournals.org, or you can subscribe in the iTunes store by typing American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine in the search box. I'm Nitin Seem for the Blue Journal.